Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Would turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. In a few moments that we have together, let me share with you some of my thoughts as we begin 2016 and this theme that as I've been praying and reflecting and looking forward to what this new year might bring to Beth Ariel as well as to my own personal life, this promise of Messiah's continued to impress itself upon me. The promise that I will build my congregation. In the Greek, ekklesia, translated the church, the congregation, the assembly, the congregated ones. So if you have your Bibles, look at verse chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. And in that passage, we read, And when Yeshua came into the districts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say, John, the immerser, the Baptist, not the denomination Baptist, but the one that is immersing people in the Jordan River at the time. And uh, Elijah, others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Yeshua answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my congregation, or my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Messiah. In verse 21, from that time, Yeshua began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Messiah, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of mankind. Well, this is a very full passage. It's a very difficult passage, and it's a very involved passage. There are a number of things that strike me, first of all. Uh, To begin with, this is at Caesarea Philippi. This is not to be confused with Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. This Caesarea is about 120 miles north of Jerusalem. 
It is about, I believe it is, the northernmost place that Yeshua went during his earthly ministry. It's all the way north of the Sea of Galilee. It's further north than even the, uh, the area from which all of the, the water that comes from Mount Hermon flows down and gathers together before it flows into the Jordan, uh, into the Sea of Galilee, before it becomes the Jordan River. This is near the foothills of Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in the land of Israel. That mountain, Mount Hermon, rises about 1,200 feet or 12,000 feet above sea level. It's right on the Lebanese-Syrian border today. He's way up north. And it would appear that in Matthew chapter 17, where we read of the Mount of the Transfiguration experience, that Yeshua was located on Mount Hermon, for it happens right after this event, which is at Caesarea Philippi. This area was established by the Greeks during Alexander the Great. And when it was established by the Greeks, it was called Paneus, named after the god Pan, because the Greeks had established a worship site there. And there are a number of niches you could see to this day carved into the sides of the cliff area at this, in this region where the statues of Pan would have been uh, set and where they would have stood. Today it's called the Banyas, which is named after, really, Pan. But at the time of Augustus Caesar, Herod the Great had built a temple there to the god uh, Pan in honor of Caesar Augustus, the first Caesar of Rome, or the Caesar at the time of the birth of Messiah. Therefore, it was called Caesarea after Caesar in honor of Caesar Augustus. Later, this area and the whole region was given to Herod. Herod Philip, one of the sons of Herod the Great. In the south, you had Archelaus, one of the sons of Herod. Later, you'll have Herod Antipas, who was given the area of the Galilee. But Herod Philip, the son of Herod the Great, was given this region north of the Sea of Galilee. And therefore, he had reestablished it. He rebuilt it and made it more beautiful than it was before. And therefore, he renamed it Caesarea Philippi after himself, since he was the one that had recrafted the area. So Caesarea Philippi is in the north. Today, if you go, you'll see these waterfalls that flow as the snows on Mount Hermon melt and come through these various springs and and then begin to manifest itself in this region. There are all kinds of beautiful flowers and gardens that grow up just naturally because of all the spring water. In 1979, when I was visiting Israel, I remember we were in this region and the region was re- more recently captured from uh, by the Israelis from the Syrians. And the Syrians had built a pool in this area for their officers. And we had opportunity to go swimming in this pool, which was fed by the springs of the waters flowing from Mount Hermon. And let me tell you, it was cold. But it was in the middle of the summer, it was like June. And so it was just beautiful to go in, you got used to it. And then when you came out, you know, you just dried off really quickly. But it's just a beautiful area. Yeshua took his disciples to this distant region in the land of Israel. 
He wanted to speak particularly to them, exclusively to them, as he's now training them for the ministry they will carry on, for the death of Messiah is near. When he brings them together, he asks them the question, who do others say that I am? Now, I don't think he was asking because he was very self-conscious and he was concerned what others had thought about him. He was really setting them up for the real question, which is, what do you think of me? Who do you think that I am? But it is interesting to note that what others thought of Yeshua is really pretty good, isn't it? Others thought of him as being, some said, well, if we're going to associate him with someone, they're not thinking that he was actually them. But if we're to associate him with someone, we would associate him with a man like John. Because John was a devoted follower of God, deeply committed, and a man of principle and honor. And therefore was ready to speak up when one man was having another man's wife. Or when the religious leaders would come and he saw them as hypocrites. He was very straightforward and honest about those realities. And so some people, when they saw Yeshua, they said, you know, he reminds me of a man like John. Some people said... He reminds me of a man like Elijah, the prophet. Well, what a wonderful prophet to be associated with. This was a man who did incredible miracles, right? I mean, for three years it rained. Three years it didn't rain because he so prayed. He was another man of great courage as he stood up against all of the Baal prophets and called down fire from heaven and God responded to him. They associated him with a very significant prophet. In fact, the prophet who would become sort of a symbol for all of the prophets. And that's why at the Mount of the Transfiguration, you have Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets present. That's why at Passover, at the end of the Seder meal, we open the door to see if Elijah might be running a little late. He's the symbol of all of the prophetic ministries of the prophets of Israel. And they associated Yeshua with a man like that. Not only that, they associated him with a prophet like Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the caring prophet. While it may be that he was very outspoken, Yeshua, I'm saying, and very direct, he was also a man of great compassion and concern. And just as Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem in light of the impending judgment by the Babylonians, so will Yeshua weep over Jerusalem because of the impending judgment by the Romans for rejecting him as Messiah. So whatever they saw of Yeshua, they saw him in a very positive light. And you know, what it made me think of today, most people, most people, if you ask them, what do you think about Yeshua? What do you think about Jesus? They'll say good things. They'll say he was a good man. They'll say he was uh, maybe even a prophet. He was a man of principle. He was a man who was a good teacher. They don't say bad things about him. They say good things about him. But they don't say the right things about him or the most fullest things one could say about him. But it's right in that, mis- in that instance that when the Lord then says to his disciples, but who do you all say that I am? Well, Peter, the spokesperson for the disciples, stands up with great clarity and conviction and says the right thing. Now, he doesn't always do that. But in this instance, he does. 
There are many times where Yeshua has to take him aside and say, now, Peter, no, 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 it's not really like that, you know? Or he just blunders in a variety of ways. But we don't want to make too much of his blundering because one day we're going to stand in heaven near him and we want at least him to think well of us, you know? Are you the one that kept pointing out my faults, you know? But here is the one that stands up and says what Everyone needs to say, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In fact, what he says is quite profound because he puts together two aspects of Messiah that would take years for theologians to crystallize, that he is both God and man. He's the son of the living God, and he's the Messiah of Israel. He recognized the fullness of who this one is that he was speaking to. Now, I want to get to the promise, I will build my body, but I want you to notice two other things that really struck me, and that's why I read a more complete section, and that is in verse 21. He tell, we're told that from that time, the time in which this is happening, from that time, Yeshua began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, suffer many things, eventually die and rise again on the third day. This is where he begins to articulate in greater specificity and clarity why he has come to give his life. Now, if you look at, you don't have to turn there, but if you look in chapter 4, when Yeshua first starts his ministry, Right after he is tempted, lured by the evil one, when he comes through all of that, it then says, at this time, Yeshua began to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it seems that there's a division that goes on in the life of Messiah, the ministry of Messiah. Up to this point, he's proclaiming himself as Israel's Messiah, and he's calling them to repent in order that they may enter the kingdom that he's come to establish. But by chapter 16, he begins a new message. And the new message he begins to articulate with greater clarity for his disciples is that his purpose in coming is to provide atonement for our sin. Now, once he mentions that, Peter stands up again. This time, he doesn't say such good things, but he cares for his Savior. I think it's really interesting. He takes him aside. Yeshua, let me just tell you a couple of things, you know. I mean, it's like amazing that he does that. But he takes him aside, and he says, Lord, far be it from you. But then those words of Messiah, get behind me, Satan. It made me think that the gate to heaven and the gates to hell are very close. You have to be really cautious how you walk. In one moment, you're at the gates of heaven. You are the Messiah. And at the next moment, we're at the gates of hell. Far be it from you. that we, Don't we do this all the time? We'll come here this morning. We stand up. We say, light the fire. But the moment we get out those doors, someone cuts us off. We're ready to say all kinds of things and maybe even do some kinds of things. You know, we come here every Shabbat and we worship, we hear the word of God. But when we get out there, all of a sudden somebody slights us and we're ready to be so angry and so irresponsive and irresponsible. We're, we're like Peter. One moment, Lord, you're the God of Israel. The next moment, you know, we sort of just deny everything we really believe about him. Wouldn't it be great to finally get it where we're more, a little more consistent about 
the recognition of who he is in our life, reflecting our trust and hope in him. I mean, this is what the grace of God is about. I say this because notice what Yeshua says. When Peter stands up and says those words, he doesn't say, Peter, you are so smart. He doesn't say, Peter, you have studied so intently. Where did you find this in the word of God? He doesn't say, Peter, you must have prayed so significantly and it just, you know, crystallized in your mind. No, he says, God has revealed this to you. You know, the reason you and I know the Lord is the same reason why Peter was able to say the words that he said. God has opened our hearts to him. He may have used his word. It may have involved prayer. It certainly did both of those things for me. But ultimately, it is not our own brilliance that led us to the place where we acknowledge Yeshua as Messiah and said the words that Peter has said. It's because God, in his grace, has revealed him to us. And the grace of God, as I think about this, the grace of God, I've always, you know, just sort of given the rote uh, definition unmerited favor. And I remember in class, I used to say this often, you know, that the distinction between grace and mercy, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. took me a long time to really be able to say that. But it's true, but it's not true enough. You know, the grace of God is indeed that which results in our standing before God forgiven. But there's also a power that is granted by means of God's grace. There is something that is conveyed to us, an empowerment that is also the grace of God that not only enables us to stand forgiven, but to say things like Peter says, blessed are you, he says to Peter. Another way of saying Grace has been extended to you that you might know this. Not only that you might be forgiven and stand justified and therefore no longer guilty for your sin. Being one who has had unmerited favor of God, that is true. But there's something more dynamic here. And that is the grace of God is conveyed in a way to change your life and your thoughts and your actions. And so Peter is told... Blessed, by the way, this is a very Jewish event. It's extremely Jewish, though we don't think of it that way. But this idea of blessed, how many times do we say that today? Baruch atah I when we bless the candles. How many times do we say that when we partook of the unleavened bread? How many times do we say that when we partook of the juice that we, par- that we had together? What about when we first started our service? Blessed is he who is blessed. Blessed is he who is blessed forever and ever, you know, worthy to be praised. When, when Yeshua says, blessed are you, this is a very Jewish way of expressing the, the extension of God's grace upon an individual. And so he says, blessed are you. And notice, he calls him by his Aramaic name, you know, Simon Barjona. And in the midst of him saying, you are, you know, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, right? And he says, you are called, how, how does he put it? I guess we should look at it more accurately. But he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, and this is really a critical passage, right? I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my congregation. 
Now, you know, I think over the course of the years, I've interpreted this passage differently. So I'm at a different point in my life, and this is a different way I'm seeing it now. I've never seen the idea of him building his congregation. By the way, the word here, ecclesia, is always used in the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew scriptures for the Hebrew word kahal, congregation or gathering or assembly. So when Yeshua says, I will build my kahal, my congregation, he's talking about the believers who will trust in him. And he says, I will build my ecclesia, my called out ones. That's what ecclesia means, right? Kaleo, to call, ek, out of. Ecclesia, called out ones. Ones called out of our world and called into a relationship with the living God. That assembly, just like Israel was called out from the world. Abraham was called out from Chaldea uh, of the Chaldeans. He's called out from the world to a land that he, God would show him and to a relationship with the living God, not, a, not one of the false gods recognized in the world at that time. He was called out. And so in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, they always use the word ekklesia for kahal. So he's saying, I'm, I will build my kahal. Now the question is, what does Messiah build his kahal on? Now he says of Peter, you are Petras. But upon this Petra, I will build my kahal, my congregation, my believers. And now I've taken this different ways, and this is where I am at today, you know, because there's a lot of dispute over this passage. But let me say this, it is not on Peter, okay? It can't be on Peter. By the way, this is interesting from a Catholic point of view, you know, I think it was Pope Pius IV who had said that this interpretation, which the Catholicism has understood it to be Peter, it was to be embra- was embraced by all the church fathers of the early centuries. And there was a Catholic scholar by the name of Lenoy who did a study of the, the early Catholic scholars or the early church scholars. And there were 85 that had written comments on this. And you know what he found out as a Catholic scholar, 15 of them understood it to be a reference to Peter. All the rest did not. Individuals like Augustine, Augustine, Anselm, Origen, some of these early men of faith, they understood it as a reference to the confession that Peter made with respect to Yeshua being the Messiah. In other words, they understood that that upon which Messiah would build his kahal would be on the confession that Peter gave that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's what he'll build it upon. That's where I think I've fallen today, you know, in understanding this. Some, Jerome, interestingly enough, In his commentary on Matthew, he said that he believed that the one upon whom he would build the congregation was Messiah. Not the confession that Peter gave, but Messiah himself. His reason is quite striking. He says, first of all, you are Petras, which means a stone. But upon this Petra, rock, I will build my kahal. I didn't know this, but Jerome pointed it out is that everywhere in the Hebrew scriptures where the word tsur is used for the word rock, which is what the Septuagint uses for the word 
Petra, which is what's used here, rock. I didn't know this before, but every time it is used in the Hebrew Scriptures, it is only used for God. It's only used. That's why I read Psalm 18. I think three times in that verse, David refers to God as his rock. In Isaiah chapter 8, Messiah is called a rock of offense, a cornerstone. It's never used. Like, you know, you would think Moses might have been called the rock of Israel as he brought him out of Israel. No, never. You might think David may have been referred to as a rock upon whom the kingdom was established. You might even think one of the prophets like Elijah. But you know, in the Hebrew scriptures, only God is referred to as a rock. And so from Jerome's point of view, he said he would build his kahal on himself, on Messiah. I think the two are very closely related, but I think it's very critical that we realize Petros is a stone, but it's upon this Petra, this rock. And I think... It is the confession that Peter has made that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But this is what this all draws my attention to, is that Messiah then promises that upon this reality, that Yeshua is the Messiah of Israel, the Son of the living God, the one who would die for our sin as the final atonement and be raised to life demonstrating the acceptance of Messiah's atonement for our benefit on this reality and on this acknowledgement, Yeshua will build his congregation. That a congregation is built on who he is and by individuals acknowledging that and trusting in him for that purpose. And his congregation is built. And so as I look at this promise... As I look at this hope for the coming year, and I want to share more about this, but he says, I will build my congregation. My prayer is that we're going to see him build Beth Ariel and build the lives of Beth Ariel of people. And so we want to pray that the Lord this year will build his congregation. That means he needs to build our lives so that we are a people who are well-established in our faith as well as in our life. We need to mature in the faith. We need to become disciples of our Lord. We need to follow him. We need to live for him. We need to put aside the ways of the world and walk and live in a way that will honor him and draw people's attention to him. I don't mean we have to become stuffy and stale. We can still be fun and have, you know, and be in the world but not of the world. But we want to be a people where Messiah is presented. We want to move to a place where we can present who Messiah is, see individuals embrace him, and see the congregation built up under his guidance and under his leadership. So as we started the year here in celebrating the Lord's Supper, and as we think about Messiah's promise, I will build my congregation, we need to be ones that are fully committed to him as the living God, the son of the living God, and as the one who is the Messiah in our life. So I want us to sort of take a moment, as the worship team comes, to take a moment and to dedicate ourselves for this purpose. To dedicate ourselves, Lord, build me up as an individual. Enable me to walk more faithfully before you, to be more devoted to you, perhaps in prayer and the reading of his word, certainly the reading of his word.
I want us to pray that he might build us up to be better husbands, to be better wives, to be better children of our parents. I want us to pray the Lord would build us up that we might be better parents to our children, that we might be better employees or employers. We want to pray the Lord would build us up, and then we want to pray the Lord would add to his body, to his congregation, and we might be ones who would be his voice, voices like Peter's was. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and help others to see that as well. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this day, this time of worship, time of praise, time of reflection on your word. And Lord, you are, as Peter has said, you are the Messiah of Israel. You're the promised one. And you are the son of the living God. You are the son of man. You are the one who has provided atonement. You are the one that can enable us to enter into the gates of heaven. You are the ones who can use us to bring many out from behind the bars of the gates of Hades. And so we pray, Lord, that you would build your body. May you build our lives individually. May you build our families collectively. May you build our congregation, especially through our life groups and our family ministry. Lord, we commend these to you and pray you would use them to build us up in our relationship with you. And then we pray, Lord, you would launch us, send us out to see more of your people brought into your body. So, Lord, we would, with one voice, pray that you might fulfill your promise to us and here at Beth Ariel, that you would build your congregation and that the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. Lord, we bless your name and we glorify you. May our lives do that, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.